0: Well, welcome to our podcast on messaging frameworks and how to successfully align teams internally. Um, before I talk about what a messaging framework is, I would be absolutely delighted to welcome our panellists today. Uh, Marcus Misson, um, Executive Director Fund Funds at Wall Trade, uh, Petra Ingram, CEO at Brook, and Alison Wallace, um, CEO at SOS Children's Villages. So welcome, to you three. Thank you. Welcome. Now, you may be wondering why we chose frameworks, messaging frameworks, as a topic for this podcast. Well, our observations have been um, over time that all charities want to make sure their front comms are as effective as possible, Um, but we're also seeing really competing communications going out to supporters, which is sometimes driven by kind of conflicts and objectives amongst the teams. So the consequences are that there's sometimes confusion for supporters, inefficiency and quite frankly demotivated teams. Therefore, charities are increasingly looking to create messaging frameworks that that really simplify that message to supporters and create one voice for the organisation. And it also allows the teams to internally get on with their jobs and feel empowered. Um, So we asked you three, because your organisation have all embarked on this journey. Um, and I think you all have a really interesting perspective as leaders within your organisation of why this was important um, and what you want out of it. So my first question, looking back, and Marcus, this is a quite a long time back, um, when you started your journey, what issues did you face?
1: Oh gosh,
2: so, okay, so internally, teams were siloed. Uh, Solid in their thinking and solid in their doing. And uh, yeah, I'm responsible for communications and fundraising. And, but there were, there were the classic arguments, of the communications guys fighting with the fundraising guys and vice versa, uh, and uh, around a battlefield of which which bit of the, the engine is the most vital. Uh, but the key reason actually was an external one, which is a real sense that the sector had become, silent, uh, had become too transactional mm. uh, and had kind of lost its sense of its purpose and how to engage people. So for us, it's about an engagement strategy. Uh, and and so yeah, the model was broken and we were determined from a wardrobe point of view that we were going to redefine the model.
1: Great. Petra? I think from um Brooke's perspective, it was very much about responding to change. So as an organization, we've been through a huge amount of change mm. over the last five years, and that's really, I guess probably actually a journey we've been on for longer than that. Moving from traditional aid uh, model of providing veterinary services through static clinics and mobile clinics, Brooke, um, is about improving welfare of working horses, donkeys and mules um, around the world. Um, But in the last few years, we've really been trying to focus much more on bringing about sustainable change. And we've been doing that through um, looking at our strategy, looking at our theory of change, Um, and in the field, it's made a substantial difference to the way we operate. And so what we found over time is that our messaging um, to our supporters has become um, a little outdated to where our programme thinking is. So we wanted to use this um, framework as a way of bringing together um, both our programmatic approach and our messaging to our supporters in a way that could have the most benefit to the organisation.
0: Where was SOS? (laughs) Indeed, where was (laughs) SOS?
3: So we're SOS Children's Villages UK, the UK arm of the world's largest alternative childcare organisation. I won't be too surprised if people go, what? Uh, Both around this table and indeed uh, listening to the podcast. Almost zero brand recognition. very little in the way of positioning or clarity around who we are and what we stand for um, here in the UK vis a vis work delivered uh, overseas. So, that to begin with, a pretty fundamental well, who are we and how, we do, how do we present ourselves and to whom? Uh, but also, a huge amount of changeover in the staff teams. A huge brand new fundraising director, brand new communications director, their team still being recruited and brought into the organization. And it really was almost kind of like a, a startup kind of approach. We have to be thinking right from the get-go, who is it that we want to talk to? What is it we want them to think about, who we are, what actions we want them to take uh, based on that. And we had, in a sense, a complete blank sheet and everything to play for.
0: Great. Um, and how important was it for you guys to um listen to your supporters in that journey?
1: I kick off with that. Um, absolutely fundamental. Um, you know, we went through a massive consultation process uh, internally, but equally, we talked to a lot of our supporters um, and people that mirrored our supporters as well to give us the best possible chance of finding a framework that resonated with everybody. Um, and it was a, a, a process of kind of opening up your thinking and then really closing down and thinking mm. to what we ended up with on the framework. So for me, it was a pivotal part of the process.
3: I mean, all good fundraising communications has to start, doesn't it, with an understanding of who you're talking to and what's going to inspire them. Uh, for us at SOS UK, we had none of that data or that information to hand. Mm. So we, again, coming back to the idea of a, a blank sheet, we needed to find ways to find out who it was we should be talking to and what the key messages were going to be. And I, I suspect, in common with many other organizations, we don't tend to have a staff base reflective of the kinds of people who have been giving to us. So you have to be really careful not to go, Well, I wouldn't like to hear that, or that's not the way that I like to be approached. Mm. You just have to, Well, what is it that the people we want to join our organization support us? What do they want to hear, and how do they like to be approached? So it's absolutely fundamental, with your support, to start thinking about who might be the audiences. Okay, if those are the kinds of audiences, what what bits of their lives and their um, uh, ways of being with their families might be something we could look at. How then do we talk about those aspects of their lives? We would never, I think, have gone through quite such a rigorous process unless we'd sat down right at the beginning and thought through who those audiences were meant to be.
2: Yeah. It's... Um... Surprising, listening to Alison and Petra. I mean, there's so many similarities uh, in terms of our experience. The uh, uh, and and the approach we take to this is it's not about fundraising communications. It's about communications. Um, and actually, yes, you know, uh, we are one of the reasons we're here is to raise money, but it's not the only reason we're here. So, from a communications point of view, and actually understanding our supporters. For us, it was very much about uh, what is our relevance to them. How do we how do we how do we uh, how do we develop solidarity? How do we how do we uh, encapsulate that? Uh, and how does how does our brand fit in the relevance of their own personal brand? Um, and so that fundamentally meant that we had to start looking outwards. We had to move away from thinking about technique and really really understand who our supporters are, existing supporters and potential supporters, uh, and understanding what what their passion is. And how we can align our values to their values in order to, to, to very much develop uh, partners in the mission, not just funders of mm. the mission. And that's that's one of the fundamental strategic considerations for us.
0: And you talked before about you've got a messaging framework and an engagement framework. How do those two things gonna come together for you?
2: Okay, so so we have an engagement, so we don't have a communication strategy or fundraising oh, sorry, strategy, yeah. we've got an engagement strategy. Um, and communications and fundraising, or the elements of communication and fundraising. Fits underneath that, so in many ways that's our north star. Um, And we, we in the engagement and within the engagement strategy, there's an engagement framework. Uh, We know for different audiences what the stages of engagement are, uh, what the different messages are that will trigger them to move through those stages of engagement, uh, and the, the the different platforms or media. That will do that um, and it's not a linear process it's kind of a circular one because it's constant reinforcement 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 but the fundamental th- so messaging fits within that um, and you know, if you imagine in the engagement framework it's going from knowing nothing about us through to loving the cause uh, and then you know it's, it's very much what is the messages that they will hear they will listen and that resonate with them as opposed to those that we broadcast. So it's not what we say, it's what people hear. Mm. And it's not the value that we drive on them. It's the value that they have and we can add value into their lives.
1: Can I pick up and answer a question here because it's really interesting listening to you talk about what's happened in WaterAid right? and you think about the external environment and how all charities are having to respond to massive changes in mm. the way we engage with supporters, particularly in the last couple of years. Um, I'm really interested to understand how much of um, what you've been doing was in response to that change in the external environment and how much of it was kind of like just the journey that Waterway has been on.
2: Gosh, that's a really good question. Um, so so we started this journey uh, about five years ago. No, about seven and a half years ago, um, and what we what we saw was that um, the sector had become more and more transactional. Everyone was focusing on techniques. And if you think about the the you know the, the team that engages the public the most and raises funds for the public, even the mass engagement what we call it marketing marketing team. Um, there's a lot of technique in there, uh, and there's a there's a there's a an urgency of narrative through leadership rather than the board around you to optimize the spectrum. So the four to one. Um, and so we saw the dynamic was driving, uh, driving optimization, uh, which then reduces innovation, but as well as that, uh, driving a, a heightened focus on a limited uh, pool of techniques and activities. Um, and we and also we felt that, yes, we saw that the society was changing and we felt that there was a willful blindness within our sector because people are trying to long tail something that hasn't really innovated for a very, very long time. Uh, so I guess we saw what was going to happen and reacted to that before it actually happened. Mm. Whereas I think where the sector is now is that actually people are now reacting mm. in a crisis. And I, th- I think there's something fundamental in our sector around... Uh, most other sectors innovate when things are going well, not when they face a crisis. Mm. Whereas actually, when things are going well, we don't innovate, we innovate in a crisis. Mm. And so very much was a cultural thing we had to drive in terms of getting ahead of the the impending... Cliff, or whatever
0: it was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in, in terms of the journey being with um, your engagement strategy what what impact has it had on all trade have you got success coming out of it
2: yeah so uh, so the it's broken down the silos between communication and fundraising it's broken down the silos between I was really struck by your point Petra. Broken down the silos between uh, communications fundraising and advocacy uh, because at the end of the day, what we want is people who champion advocacy with us, and also give us money. Um, the other thing also is it's um, retention is good. We're raising more money, and actually, if I if I give an example, uh, so our last campaign we ran Untapped. If I put all of the marketing communication on the on the table here, uh, probably about well, probably about sixty percent of it didn't ask for a donation. Um, and it also was, it wasn't It was the classic needs-based uh, double jeopardy, give us money or something terrible happens to this person or, or this animal. Um, and we actually raised more money by not asking for money because we had the integrated messaging. Mm. Yeah.
1: It's really interesting listening to you talk because we're um, not as far progressed on the journey with uh, implementing our framework. Um, and one of the concerns I've got is that if you um, if you con- condense your messaging into just a couple of really key things, yeah. and you integrate that across the organisation, so with your supporters in your advocacy work, that so actually you're not doing your field work justice because it doesn't mm-hmm. just because you message it in that way, it doesn't change what you're doing programmatically. So how do you overcome the issue that? in your programs team you've got a whole raft of things happening that you're not communicating and this is you know it's always the the dilemma isn't it you know how how do you kind of showcase all that work when you're so focused on just communicating a couple of things and, and manage that internally as well so really interested to if, 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 uh. You're
2: doing
0: a great job. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so I'm intrigued. It's just
2: fascinating. <laughs> so, 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 I think you know one of the one of the things we grapple with is it's often positioned as a binary thing, isn't it? And if we think in terms of policy and communications, marketing, uh, one of the tensions is uh, the marketers dumb it down, and then from the marketer's point of view, the policy guys overcomplicate it. Uh, I think you know the, the the one one of the things that we absolutely did was we recognize that there's a difference between the why, what and the how, and most organisations are really good at talking about the how, in which case then you get into that space of going, we need to tell everyone about everything we do. Uh, and which is explaining the how, uh, as opposed to really focusing on the you know the, the why which is the thing that, that absolutely galvanizes the teams internally and they can align behind, but as well as that, it engages and galvanizes the external audience because otherwise, really, I think what we're trying to do is sell them strategy and sell them operational plans as opposed to this is the change that you can make in the world and let's work together. Now, obviously, people want to get down into the detail and we need to get down to the detail, but, it, but it's very much as like a funnel. Mm.
3: So picking up on that, I think that's the particular benefit of the narrative framework approach, is is that it does focus on the the why and and the what rather than the how, and that you can use those top line messages to then be able to create a space behind which come the more detail. And Also very interesting to hear you both reflect, and maybe this is happening in the, the wider sector more broadly, on the... Advocacy and policy messages, which are starting to be seen as more part of that engagement whole of that communications whole. I'm sure we've all come from organisations where the fundraisers and the marketers did one thing, and the policy and advocacy people, like you said, kind of looked down their noses slightly while they got on with the quote real end quote work. And again, the messaging framework has been really welcomed by our two um, policy and advocacy people. They can see on the logic side of the of the. Um, uh, the sphere that we have, where their messaging comes in, where the how and the what comes in for them. It fits really. It's a very logical progression around it. So far, so good. And what,
0: what outcomes would you hope for in 2020? Apart
3: from the really obvious one, sorry about coming back to it's all about money.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't
3: I'm hitting those targets, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, some external ones, certainly, that is creating a brand positioning for our different audiences that is going to resonate uh, for an organisation that has really low brand profile and has a pretty stiff competition around child development and child rights, uh, particularly overseas. So so we've created that and that we all understand it and can evaluate the communications we put out against against that positioning we're trying to hold. And secondly, internally, that we are all brought into it we're a relatively small organization especially compared to my colleagues so the advocacy two people do (laughs) right next to the fundraising five people and so on but then again they see themselves as part of a coherent engagement i really like that way we have a coherent engagement whole about inviting people into do good work on behalf of children and again like you say matching matching those values i don't think My organisation has had it, even though it's been relatively small in the past, and certainly I've come from organisations where they're so large that it it really has been a a cultural shift, actually, that's required uh, to get things to integrate like Um,
1: that. I think from Brooke's perspective, because we've been through quite a lot of change, um, we've really kind of coalesced around what we're trying to achieve and our mission, and actually um, I think we've got quite a lot of internal Cohesiveness. Um, one of the things that excites me about the framework, and I think picking up on something that's happened in Water Aid, is that actually your communication is not just about raising money; um, it's about engaging people. And one of the big challenges I think we have in the sector at the moment is recruiting your donors. Um, and I think if you've got that messaging framework that's really clear um, and it's consistent across the organisation, then I'm hoping. We'll see if uh, if it uh, transpires that it will give us the ability to bring more people into, and we call it kind of like the Brook family. And you may come in through um, community engagement. You may come in through um, just sharing information with. Um, your friends taking part in one of our events, um, and ultimately, one hopes that you feel committed enough to the charity to to to, to begin the the journey of of, of financially supporting, um, but actually allowing us to bring more people into kind of the cause and and what we're trying to do so you know whether we can do that in 2020 that might be a bit ambitious but I think over time I'd really like to see us being having the confidence to go out to people and not measuring our success based on just a financial Mm -hmm. um, donation but much more about actually how can people engage with us how can they become passionate about what we're doing share our values join our cause Mm -hmm. and ultimately um, stay with us for a period of time. And I think in the sector at the moment, it's I think it's really timely, and I'm very excited that we're kind of in that place now. Yeah. We have this messaging framework, and we can use it in that way.
2: It's fascinating listening to to you, yeah. Alison, and Petra. And, and it's the for me it's the point that you, you just made, Petra, in terms of the course because I, I think you know the the is 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 our purpose. Wall Trade about War Trade or is it about the mission? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's an internal mindset around mission trumps all. And actually what we want is partners in the mission, not just people supporting World Trade because mm-hmm. World Trade is an organisation um, and the organisations have about the mission. So yeah, I would love to, and it won't be 2020 but the future, mm-hmm. to many ways turn World Trade inside out for it to, for there to be a network of, of people, organisations, companies, driving for the change which is the mission mm-hmm. um, and that would then push us into a place where you know we're, we're galvanizing facilitating uh championing their personal causes uh, in order to, to drive that that mission um, and uh, which which might be stretched too far i don't know but if we have that 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 belief internally mm-hmm. i think you know we can really start uh taking things forward uh, in a very different way
1: mm-hmm.
0: In terms of developing a framework, there seems to be there's one part in, in creating what is, in a way, a theoretical kind of piece of work, but then the trick is operationalizing it. Marcus, um, well, again, <laughs> it's like any tips on how to do this well? And was there anything that you remember back having challenges with?
2: Yeah, and it's very much a uh, point Alison made which is, um, so, so we, we realized pretty early on that you know, we, could, we could write loads of documents, we could do loads of frameworks, we could do loads of pictures, we could do loads of things. Uh, but the biggest challenge was culture. Um, and, and it was twofold, because the fact that we were making the shift when things were going well uh, was, it, you know, one of the challenges was galvanizing people, and galvanizing people around a sense of momentum and a belief that things need to change, uh, so that was as much an internal marketing thing as it was putting in place frameworks and those sort of things. Uh, and um, and I think you know one of one of the struggles is that as our sector, you know, our sector, we 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 hate failure. You know, everything's got to succeed. Uh, and if you're going to innovate, not optimise, then you've got to accept that things will go wrong. Uh, and that was one of the challenges. And and we uh, earlier on we were saying to people take risks, but actually, what does risk look like? <laughs> You know, what does risk look like? I don't know. It's one of those terms. Take risk, be brave. I don't know what brave and risk looks like. And I think a lot of people are probably going, but I'm being really, really brave and taking a risk because that was their own, against their own personal, you know, compass on that. Uh, so for us, yeah, it was around creating momentum for change. It's creating a belief and understanding that change had to happen. And then very much about unleashing our talent and engaging them in, okay, how do we make change? How do we make the shift? So they were part of the journey, part of the drive. Uh, and I think that's, that's the key bit, because then you start shifting the belief in the culture.
1: Mm. It's really interesting, Marcus, because at Brook, we're not as far down the journey as you. And we're just beginning to think about that implementation um, approach. But one of the first things we've done, because I think culture is so vital in making this work, is that we actually engaged our trustees yeah. in the framework. So we had a a dedicated session at a recent away day uh, where we shared the process, we shared the thinking, and it was actually fascinating to, um, as Janine, you'll remember, to engage with the trustees and kind of respond to some of the questions that they were coming up with um, on the journey we'd been to that point. Um, And I'm totally confident that at the end of the session, they were so much more informed about where we are um, so that as we then push forward with being brave taking risks, something which trustees, you know, traditionally are not comfortable with doing, um, but we can, um, we can do that in the confidence that they understand where we're coming from and what opportunities this represents to, uh, to, to, to the charity. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, Alison, if you've had a similar uh, situation.
3: We're in a very different position, I think, because it's such a new team and relatively small we've almost been able to do that culture change as we brought people into the organisation. So, you know, you start with your leadership team and then we've recruited people in who want to grow in their roles, who want to grow in the organisation, who want to grow the organisation, who want to do things differently, want to contribute very directly to the impact of the organisation and its beneficiaries. So we haven't had quite, I think, some of those those issues. Reflecting, though, what you say on bringing the trustees into the process, they've all been there some length of time more than almost all the staff. So there has, there has had to be that process. They're very um, they're very strong affinity to our standard fundraising product. They see us as being all about the child sponsorship uh, arrangement. So the way that we've gone about that, and Kevin and Janine have been enormously um, uh, supportive in helping us to do this, is actually involve a couple of the trustees in the creative mm-hmm. process, uh, quite detailed long periods of time, not getting all 10 of them together to to talk out what's going to happen to child sponsorship, but rather get the two to come in and contribute and road test and stress test and so on. And that's been an important part, I think, of of what we've had to do as well.
2: And I I love that that approach because there is something in there about deconstructing what people think is the right way of doing it because they've always done it that way uh, because everyone wants to do the right thing. Um, And then reconstructing a whole new way and I think there's a deliberateness mm. around recognising that, you know, you can train people, but then there's the elasticity of change. They go back to the day job of doing the thing. They've always been rewarded for doing really, really well. Yeah, so there's a deliberateness yeah. of
1: deconstructing. And I think involving people, you know, we, we talked... Um, before about the kind of the consultation process you went through in developing the framework. You know, one of the um, highlights for me through that process is involving people that are in the field collecting the case study information. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a bit embarrassing if you think that maybe in the past they might have collected a number of case studies that never actually made it to um, you know the, the outside world. And the effort that goes into that um, with a very clear framework those people are highly motivated because they can collect case studies and talk to um, people affected in the in the field by the work of the charity knowing that they're feeding into a very specific framework and that actually every effort that they put in is going to then be able to be used in that kind of external communication and so the internal effectiveness that comes out of having a framework notwithstanding the kind of individual motivation that they're really adding value in everything that they do, um, which is so important, I think, in charities in terms of, you know, we all have limited funds, so we all want to ensure that everything everybody does is of value to the charity. Um, And so that's, I think, going to be really helpful for us going forward. Um, And as we're under pressure on costs and, you know, um, having to look at how we allocate our resources, that we can be confident we're getting the best possible value out of resources that we have.
2: And that's brilliant because... I think one of the tensions we have as a sector is uh, it's all about fundraising and fundraising is a lock shop and, and everything sucked into support fundraising versus actually what you've done to democratise the fact that it's everyone supporting it and it's everyone's driving the, the end delivery, however you define it, the objectives, um, which is fantastic.
3: That, that's so important, isn't it, for recruiting and retaining your staff, for getting the maximum value for the cause from them, because it's everybody's responsibility. And part of their roles to think about how do we get more people to engage with us to achieve to achieve the mission that's everybody's kind of responsibility you don't call the fundraising director into the board meeting to say you know why has an xyz response rate been achieved or not yet
1: anyway <laughs> 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 uh, but
3: you know that's it's it is we all do it together it's part of a
0: joint effort mm. um, and that's how we break down the silos you know, one organisation. Give one piece of advice to a leader that's listening to this podcast and thinking that they want to go on a journey of creating a best-in-framework. What would that one bit of advice be?
1: Okay, of let course. me kick off. I would say don't underestimate the time that you need to develop the framework, particularly internal engagement, because ultimately the value that you'll get out of it. Is directly proportional, in my opinion, to the effort that's put in. Um, And if you try and do this around the the SLT table or with trustees Mm -hmm. um, and then impose it on your teams, it won't go anywhere. So it has to be a fully consultative process.
3: Am I now two bits? Sorry. Sorry. I I said the first thing is to listen, really listen with the support of the people that you're working with to what is coming back. Um, I found that particularly difficult. and I think a couple of my team did as well. We were convinced certain things weren't going to fit and weren't going to match and were too traditional and this is what we wanted to do. And we had to put that to one side and listen to what uh, supporters and potential supporters were, were telling us. Uh, the second thing... Um, It's it's to some extent to kind of keep the faith because there is that moment where it's just you've listened to too much. (laughs) And as my dissertation supervisor said to me a long time ago, stop reading and start writing. And you've you've got, at some point, you know, bring that together and kind of have confidence that it will come together into
0: something and start to make some decisions for the way forward. And finally, Marcus, what's your one or potentially two tips?
2: Gosh, well, you know. I'd echo everything that's really been said. Uh, and But in particular, I would say the lesson is uh, be determined. You're going to get things wrong. Uh, it's not a straight linear path. You're going to get many, many knocks, but actually no change is no longer an option. So be determined, be passionate, because it's contagious and just keep going for it.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. And I really enjoyed um, that forty-five minutes, and um, and I'm sure other people who've been listening to this podcast. I think you're in a lovely Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.